Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. We need cleaner forms of energy, and we need them fast. If enough of us demand action from our leaders, we can spark the innovation we need. Go to WeCanSolveIt.org. Together, we can do this. Welcome to The Renewable Generation, a podcast by young people, for all people. Today, I'd like to shout out my mom for birthing slash raising me, but more importantly, supporting the podcast. Speaking of this podcast, Stephen, Kelly, how are we doing on this lovely Mother's Day? Kelly, what are your plans? Last night, I made dinner for my mom and the whole family, which was really nice. And today, we're going to be doing some gardening together because it's the first really nice weekend here in Washington. It's been, it was like 88 degrees yesterday. And so we're going to um, replant the trellis and plant some flowers and trees and stuff that they got from Home Depot. Online order because they're afraid of contracting the virus from going to the store. That's the most Pacific Northwest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, Stephen, what are your plans for uh, Mother's Day? First of all, very jealous, Kelly. We just planted our, our our plants outside as well, and here in D.C., we just got a frost warning, so we had to bring all of our plants in to save them from, from dying immediately. <laughs> um, it seems like spring isn't quite here yet, but yeah, so um, for Mother's Day, I'm doing two separate Zoom calls, um, one for dad's side of the family, which is in California, and one for mom's side, which is in Peru, um, and my mom... Um, specifically asked me to uh, play a song for her. She's like, you're going to play me a song. So I, I'm, I will be playing Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud. <laughs> um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I just kind of learned it today, and you know, we'll just send it. So that clip we played at the top of the episode featuring current Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and former Speaker Newt Gingrich was actually recorded in 2008 and teases our topic for today's episode, Why is climate change politicized? Where do we go wrong from when Democrat Nancy Pelosi and Republican Newt Gingrich both agree that climate change is a problem that the government needs to address? Let's start with why is politicization such a unique American phenomenon? What are these differences between U.S. and European political parties? Well, in the U.S., we have a first-past-the-post electoral system, which basically means you get one vote, And whoever gets the majority of that one vote is automatically elected. There's no proportional voting. There's no, you don't get multiple votes. And in voting systems like this, you tend to see the popular kids win because people would rather use their vote to support a solidified brand that loosely backs their politics than a virtual unknown that they may feel more represented by. This has sprung a popular saying in the U.S. that we are all essentially voting for the lesser of two evils. So why are we in the U.S. stuck in this first-past-the-post voting system where we are forced to vote for the lesser of two evils? Why can't the U.S. have a proportional voting system like Germany? Or a two-round voting system like France? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Evan. Um, The U.S., we only have two choices, and that results in maybe the policy debate ends up being between factions of the same party. 
Whereas in Europe, they have multiple different parties. Like there's the Green Party. There's also um, the normal left-wing parties, the normal right-wing parties, as well as um, the fringe right-wing parties like the uh, AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, um, as well as the National Front in France. And so as a result, there's a much bigger mix of different options that people can vote for. Whereas in the U.S., we're stuck voting for the lesser of two evils and don't have as many avenues to push different policies like on climate. Exactly. Thank you, Kelly. And because they have so many options in these countries like France and Germany, it creates more representation for outlier voters. In the U.S., everyone has to hone in their most radical or conservative beliefs to essentially one of two choices to represent those beliefs. Whereas in Europe, there's much more of a gradient. So when you look at conservative parties in like the U.K. or Germany and France, they still have some of the strongest environmental and climate policies in the world. Meanwhile, the U.S. is gridlocked in these partisan stalemates because the conservative party is trying to form this coalition for all conservative viewpoints in the United States, whereas you have more alt-right or far-right parties in Germany or in France or in the United Kingdom that represent those viewpoints. So beyond our electoral system, what are the other factors that contribute to polarization on climate in the U.S.? How big of an issue is our campaign finance system and lobbying in Congress? Yeah, so I think those are really interesting points about you know um, U.S. government and um, European government and you know different models of government in the world. Um, U.S. specifically um, is a very uh, obviously very capitalistic society, um, and really what I want to talk about first and foremost is is a company called ExxonMobil. So um, back in 1977. Um, Exxon knew. Exxon knew about climate change. Um, in this year, they began to spearhead research at the time. They spent over a million dollars on a tanker project to study carbon dioxide in the ocean. Um, they were really the first company to put their private dollars to work to study this issue um, because they, they realized that it's an area that affects their, their company a lot. So a decade later, after that $1 million tanker, uh, they helped found the Global Climate Coalition to question the scientific basis for concern on climate change. Interesting, right? Ten years later, they start to take a stance on something, right? Meanwhile, in the 80s and the 90s, ExxonMobil has started building natural gas rigs, um, as they do for their, for their company, and they start building these, these gas rigs in the ocean and designing them two to three meters above what's, what's required um, based off their calculations. So they're, they're allowing for a tolerance of two to three meters above sea level. So what that means is that you got to follow the money here. They spent that money a decade before, and what they realized was that their gas business was contributing to climate change and causing uh, increase in temperatures, eventually leading the polar ice caps to melt and sea levels to rise, which means they had to build their natural gas rigs higher than they previously had thought. So meanwhile, while they're spending money internally and building their gas rigs above um, sea level for, for um, sea level rise, they're also talking publicly and saying, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Climate change is not a thing. It's a hoax. So in 1998, if we fast forward uh, two decades from there, ExxonMobil, um, they helped prevent the United States from joining the Kyoto Protocol, as well as other countries such as China and India, which this agreement um, was going to be an international collaboration to start to limit and control greenhouse gas emissions. So similar to t tobacco companies, they're sowing seeds of doubt and confusion in the science. ExxonMobil and other gas companies have been obfuscating science to protect their profits. There's also a podcast called Drilled that Kelly recommended to me, and 
it's um, it goes much more in depth into all of this and, and the the potential criminal allegations against these companies um, that they are now fighting in um, the state of New York. Yeah, the Attorney General of New York basically because of the evidence that they knew about climate change as early as the 1970s, but didn't disclose these risks to investors, they're actually being sued by the Attorney General of New York for defrauding shareholders, which is interesting that that's the allegation that they can actually go after because where I guess there's moneyed interests on the other side who want to protect their shareholder money. Whereas um, I think the lawsuits, there's also many lawsuits by uh, municipalities suing oil companies for the damages caused by sea level rise that are probably less likely to be successful. So that's pretty interesting. And something that they talk about in the podcast Drilled as well is the fact that in the 70s, when Exxon was investing in the supertanker project, and they were investing, um, actually a lot of the early research on solar panels and um, renewable energy came out of Exxon Labs in the 70s. Because of the oil crisis, they realized that we need to move towards cleaner sources. They could have continued that in the 80s, but instead they decided just to double down on their existing production and try to crush all the opposition. And in the meantime, we've lost several decades. If we'd begun the energy transition in the 80s, imagine where we'd be now. Instead, now we're in 2020, kind of looking down the barrel of the gun at needing to reduce our emissions by 7% every year to have any chance of staying below 1.5 degrees. So in addition to Exxon, they're the Koch brothers, who are also a big funder of politics in the United States. Um, Stephen, do you want to dive into that a bit more? Sure. Um, and also, real quick, I wanted to talk about what was so interesting about what you said is that the Attorney General, Attorney General of New York is, is suing because of misleading shareholders. It's, it's so funny that the legal argument here is, hey, you're not being honest about the money you're, you're sharing with uh, the owners of the company. So again, it's a capitalistic argument, and that's what talks in America. It's money, it's capitalism, it's the kind of country that we live in. So in the 1970s, so let me, let me rewind the clock here. So back to 1927 is when Daddy Coke the original, the OG Coke, developed a novel way of turning crude oil into gasoline. He started a company um, that eventually turned into the Coke Industries, which is uh, one of the, the most valuable privately held companies in the United States and the world. So it is privately owned and operated by his two sons, Charles and David Coke, which we also must mention that David Coke has recently passed away um, in February of this year. So these Coke brothers, they... they they have con- significant political contributions to a number of different uh, thought, uh, think tanks and political action uh, campaigns. Um, and they, they themselves are libertarian and, libertarian and conservatives, and they con- continuously donate to re- other Republican candidates. Kelly, do you want to talk about what, what kind of uh, groups that they've been funding? Yeah, so um, there are several institutes that are funded by the Koch brothers, including Americans for Prosperity and Cato Institute which are um, right-wing think tanks that they do a lot of other policy proposals beyond climate denial. The one think tank that they fund whose basically key competency is climate denial is called the Heartland Institute. And so they've released all sorts of different white papers and also some of their staffers have written books. Um, One really interesting one is called Watermelons, which is about how (laughs) the green... Movement is a watermelon. It's green on the outside to mask the red inside, which is the secret communist agenda of the green movement. So that's something um, we'll dive into a bit later as well. But essentially, so the first order argument that you can make is that climate change isn't real, so we don't need to do anything. The second order argument is that climate change might be real, but the damage from addressing climate change would be worse 
or it would not be as bad as the damage from instituting these socialist policies designed to combat climate change. I think that's a false dichotomy because there are a lot of climate policies that are compatible with small government conservative worldview. But because these are funded by fossil fuel companies, they don't want conservative climate policies either. So um, that's something that they funded. And also, interestingly, the Koch brothers have also funded the democratic centrist group Third Way, which is another, I guess, uh, centrist democrat group, which kind of goes to show that they have even... They, they're kind of like putting their fingers into every um, different part of um, the po- political system that they can. That's right. And, and I think that it kind of boils down to that the, the Koch brothers, um, as Kelly mentioned, have, have their fingers in a lot of different pots in the United States. And their network of political um, spending and structure is, is large and complex enough to rival that of the Republican National Committee. So this is the order of magnitude we're talking about with their influence. So it sounds like the so, the politicization of climate change is almost not even a problem with our political parties, but a problem with the capitalist backers of these political parties. Huh. Yeah, Interesting. exactly. And in the U.S., we also have pretty loose campaign finance rules. So um, political spending money on political campaigns is a form of free speech that is protected under the First Amendment, and because the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that corporations are people, they have the same rights as people under the First Amendment to free speech. So one case um, in 2008 called Citizens United is basically where they've established that giving money to political campaigns is a form of free speech and and is protected under the Constitution. As a result, the amount of um, campaign finance contributions from these so-called dark money groups that might be funded by companies Um, Super PACs, which are essentially, so PAC stands for Political Action Committee. It's basically a group that aggregates donations from very large donors or companies that do not have to disclose who they are and then distributes it to candidates. So this way you can be funding candidates, but you don't even have to say um, who you are that you're funding them. And so this is kind of a way for um, companies to further exert influence on the political system by funding candidates that they like. As a result, there's been a lot of partisan gridlock, and because of the amount of partisan money sloshing around in our political system, we've kind of been unable to achieve any climate legislation as at a federal level, basically, ever. What we're seeing now is that a lot of states are kind of taking the lead on passing climate um, policies, which is um, interesting. In the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, where, um, that basically gives states the rights to do anything that isn't specifically given to the federal government. And so we're, what we're seeing now is that the states are, quote unquote, laboratories of democracy, where we're seeing um, climate policies being passed, including by some Republicans. So um, we're going to talk a bit more about that after the break. But first, time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know that this year, Mother Earth doesn't want you to take her out to dinner since all the restaurants are closed anyway. Instead, she wants you to spend some quality time with her. So leaf your house and hug a tree. Yay! (laughs) That was Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. So in the first half of the podcast, we kind of got into the background, the history of why is climate change politicized. But I think an important thing, especially for us Zoomers and millennials to talk about, 
is where do we go now? Where do we go from here? How do we change the world for the better? Stephen, let's start with you. Yeah, so I think the way I kind of sum up the last section is that there are companies with outsized political power that are spending money to protect their interests. So going forward, I don't see this as something that's going to be very easily changeable in the United States, um, since it was a decision that was passed in the Supreme Court, and, and their word is law. So I think we have to do, um, my, my kind of general mantra on these kinds of things is, you do what you can with what you have um, right now. Um, so I kind of, I would first say um, that myself, um, you know, I speak a little bit to my political leanings um, personally. I would personally not identify as a Democrat or as a Republican. In general, I try to think about issues um, independently and outside of any narratives that either party is trying to push forward. So in general, I, I, I'm, I like the markets. I like, um, I like good capitalism, a fair capitalism and um, socially just capitalism. Um, and so one thing that one of my coworkers, um, again, I work at a company called New Energy Equity, which is a solar developer and financier. So one of my coworkers actually mentioned something really interesting to me, which was that if you are a conservative, then you should be advocating for, for very aggressive and early action right now. Because the thing is, if we don't act now, the, the measures we're going to have to take in the future are going to be much more extreme and much more encroaching on our personal liberties. So as a somewhat conservative-leaning individual, uh, I'm, in, I'm in favor of very drastic action now um, to protect against that in the future. Um, so one of the... One of, the, one of the two head-to-head policies that Republicans and Democrats tend to compare with climate action is the Green New Deal versus like a, a carbon tax or a carbon price is the way that I would like to frame it. So the Green New Deal, I'm sure you've all heard of it, is, is uh, modeled after um, FDR's New Deal, um, and it has a wide-sweeping array of different policies, uh, many of which are pro-climate and pro-progressive um, um, policies. Um, versus the carbon tax, which is, I, I would kind of frame it as like the economist's dream um, solution to, to climate change, which is essentially put a price on carbon emission. So if you, if you as a company emit 50 tons of CO2 that year, you're going to pay, let's say, $50 per ton, something like that. So 50 you know, tons times $50 per ton, it gets you 2,500, math, math, right? So $2,500 a year, right? So, so essentially, it's, it's putting a price on that externality because right now, anyone who emits carbon, carbon emissions, they don't pay for it, and that, and that cost is paid for by the public. I think I agree that there's kind of a framing of the Green New Deal as this leftist policy. It kind of goes back to that Heartland Institute watermelon thing where that is one thing that a lot of conservative people say this is obviously... Because in the original document, they included things like um, health care jobs guarantee that aren't necessarily actually related to the issue of climate change. So to some Republicans, that can appear as you are trying to tackle this climate issue, but it's just a Trojan horse to pass your socialist agenda. Regardless of what you think about that, that is what the Republican perspective is. And if also, so going back to what Stephen said about um, the carbon tax being a quote unquote conservative proposal... That's actually something that no, it's not something that conservative lawmakers are actually proposing. It's actually these conservative think tanks and economists, um, such as George Schultz um, and others who have proposed these um, revenue neutral carbon taxes as a potential conservative solution. But the thing is, because of 
um, the longstanding, I guess, conservative idea that we shouldn't have no, any new taxes. I mean, George Bush, the older one, lost re-election in 1992 because he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he increased taxes. So um, a carbon tax currently is not something that's really on the table for Republicans. When What we're seeing from now is that actually Republicans are beginning to propose nationwide climate solution bills that include things like more funding for R&D, um, planting a trillion trees, um, a lot of research into things like carbon capture and storage um, to keep the lifetime of coal. Um, you see senators like John Barrasso from Wyoming, which is a coal-heavy state, proposing things like that. I think it's fantastic that they're proposing these policies and getting on board, um, but the question is whether these are actually compatible with um, getting to net zero by 2050 or other ambitious climate targets that we need to keep global warming where we need it to. When we're talking about the Green New Deal, what specific policies within this Green New Deal are turning off conservative voters? The first one I would think to is like a, a federal jobs guarantee. And there's also a clause in there about um, health care, um, which I'm, I'm not going to talk about whether or not those are good policies or not. But the, the idea is that, is that a climate policy? Yeah, um, I think the Green New Deal specifically, because of its association with um, probably some of the more left-leaning politicians in the Democratic Party, has kind of become a rather toxic brand on some level. Um, at least the Democrats on the national stage perceive it to be that way. But if you boil it down, the core principle behind it is that what we should be doing is funding green jobs and investing in infrastructure. As I talked about in the last episode, every single politician claims to be in favor of building infrastructure. And the infrastructure that we should be building is things like transmission lines, hydrogen pipelines, maybe even carbon capture. And those are things that um, you, the Green New Deal, like giving people jobs to build these things, restoring, even doing like restoration work for habitats. Those are things that you could pay people to do. Because right now, we're at 14.7% unemployment, which is the highest since the Great Depression. We are going to have to find a way to get, put people back to work, especially right now we're paying people unemployment. What if instead of paying people unemployment, we paid them the same amount but gave them an actual job building the infrastructure of the future? I think even, I mean, one big conservative concern is that giving people unemployment is going to make them not want to work. Okay, then how about we, as at a national level, find these infrastructure projects that can support our clean energy future and put people to work doing that? And also, maybe like when we're building these transition lines, find a way to maintain social distancing while we do so. So do you guys think that the secret to passing the Green New Deal lies in reframing it to be more of an infrastructure-related thing? Or do you think it just has to do with having Democrats in Senate and having Democrats in the executive branch? That is a great question, Evan. It's one I think about that Kelly and I also discuss all the time. But I think there are so many things you could talk about there. Yes, definitely you need to work on messaging there. Definitely framing is, is the name of the game in terms of uh, the Green New Deal. You could just as easily call it a modern energy infrastructure and just take all the polit politicization out of it. And, and if, if senators are on board and, and Congress people are on board with that, like who cares, right? Who cares what it's called as long as it gets done? Um, there's also a very, a very strong argument towards just, yeah, just elect Democrats and let them pass those, um, those climate policies. But again, to, my, to the point I brought up last episode is that, okay, what happens when the political pendulum swings the other way and Republicans are not in power? If Republicans are not at the table crafting these solutions as well, we will have lost all the progress that we made. Um, also, to, to Kelly's points from, from before, 
100% agree that we are in a massive recession right now. We're just starting a massive recession and we need to start spending. The government needs to start spending to bring us out of recession and give people jobs. It's going to save us money in the short term. It's going to save us money in the long term. So from a conservative standpoint, it's a good, it's a good package as well. One other thing that you had brought up, which was, okay, on the message, on the idea of framing, right? So I mentioned that the Green New Deal could be called the Green New Deal or Modern Energy Infrastructure Package or whatever. Call it a, call it a, a unicorn for whatever you care, you know? It doesn't matter to me as long as we get the things done. Also on the idea of the carbon tax, this is a, it's a thing I mentioned briefly, but I really want to get back on this point, is that we can call it not a carbon tax, maybe call it a carbon price and dividend, or call it a... No one likes the word tax, right? Not even not even Democrats like the word tax. Like it, it's something that you have to spend extra money on, and no one likes to spend extra money. So just take that take that connotation entirely out of the conversation, and just say carbon price and dividend, maybe. But to go back to the issue of a tax, right? No, I think it's a unique issue in climate that we talk about the tax as the solution, because taxes. Whether for better or worse, in the U.S., we perceive all taxes to be bad. For any other policy solution, we lead with what is the good that's going to come out of it. For instance, we're going to build schools. And as a result, you're going to have to pay an extra maybe 1% property tax. Instead of saying, we're going to give you a 1% property tax because uh, to like w- for whatever reason. Oh, and also, we'll refund the money to everyone, which... To the average person, that doesn't really seem to make sense. You're just kind of using government bureaucracy to redistribute money for no good reason. Instead, if we're saying, okay, we are going to build a national network of transmission lines, um, renewable energy, high-speed rail. Oh, and by the way, we're going to pay for this with a carbon tax. This is something that intuitively makes sense, right? You want to build these good things, you tax the bad things. So there is an interesting study about um, what are the different types of carbon taxes that people support. So um, the policy support for, based on surveying Democrats and Republicans, a carbon tax, if refunded to every American household, only 44% of Americans support that and 25% of Americans oppose it. Um, In contrast, the supporting a carbon tax with revenue used for research and development for renewable energy programs, 51% of Republicans support this and 47% oppose Overall, 60% of people support this. So even Republicans are more in favor of a carbon tax with revenue used for research and development for renewable energy than a, carb- than a revenue-neutral carbon tax. So this kind of shows the difference between what the average person believes versus what maybe conservative orthodoxy or economists would believe, right? The economists are like, oh, the best way to do this is to have a carbon tax that starts at $10 per ton and ratchets up by $5 per ton every year um, until 2040, when it stays constant at a rate of $200 per ton. I don't know if my math is correct on that one, but basically it's like you are focused on what is the economically optimal solution rather than saying, hey, here are the things that we need to invest in. We're, we're creating a better future. And the way, oh, by the way, the way that we're going to do that is by taxing carbon. So it sounds like an issue with reframing. And uh, guys, I think I have the perfect way to reframe the Green New Deal. It's the Green New Spiel. <laughs> Kelly, let's start with your green new spiel. <laughs> yeah, so um, recently, um, as of May 5th, um, renewable energy has produced more coal in the U.S. than coal for 40 days straight. This is partly due to the fact that um, electricity demand has reduced um, due to the coronavirus and reduced commercial and industrial electricity consumption. And basically, right now, renewable plants 
um, if they're producing, then the grid is supposed to be taking as much of it as possible. So right now, the share of renewables on the grid is higher, and that's kind of a forecast of what's to come as we build out more wind and solar plants. And currently, I think the electricity supply is good. We're all able to do our Zoom calls with no interruption in our service. So it shows that um, there's a potential for a future with higher uh, renewable penetrations. Thank you, Kelly. All right, Stephen, your green news spiel is up. Yeah. Um, so my green news spiel um, this this week is regarding this this topic of peak oil. Um, so I saw an article the other day that came out and said peak oil may have been in 2019. So so peak oil is to define it. Um, it is the point of maximum oil production, which means that after that point. Um, there will be less and less oil produced every month, every year. Um, it'll be decline in oil production. So this has implications on supply and demand in the, in the world, as well as pricing. So as the production of oil starts to decrease, after some time, there will be a decrease in supply of oil. And when the supply of oil gets smaller and smaller, the price of oil goes up. So it's going to be more more scarce and more valuable. And, and people are going to start to realize, oh, in order to, to power my truck or in order to, to you know, build this building or do this industrial process, it's going to cost me more because the fuel is more expensive. Um, so what it's going to do is start to tip those, those price points and those comparisons between oil and, and other petroleum products versus renewables and clean energy and perhaps nuclear as well. Um, and this, this prediction of that peak oil may have been in 2019 is definitely due to the coronavirus. Um, you know, people are coining this as the great pause. And after this moment, you're going to see a lot more people working from home indefinitely. You're going to see a lot less business travel because people realize you can have a lot of meetings over zoom. So maybe after all of this, we're going to learn as a society that we can get by with less oil. Um, so who knows, this might be a true turning point in our future. Yeah, and it's particularly interesting um, that even the CEO of Shell is saying we might have seen peak oil demand because of the permanent um, decline in potentially road travel and aviation. And they're actually cutting their um, dividend to shareholders to preserve cash to um, invest in um, new energy technology. So even Shell is um, bought into the energy transition instead of going back on their um, net zero commitment, they're doubling down on it, which is in contrast to what um, Exxon was doing in the 70s and 80s. So it'll be, if the oil companies are really serious about diving forward into the energy transition, we could potentially see very rapid changes. Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green news spiels. And with that, we wrap up the show. Thank you for joining us this week on The Renewable Generation. This week, we delved into quite a bit of history, but next week... We're going to get into history in the making when we talk about the effect that coronavirus has had on climate issues. Thank you. Mm -hmm.